You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. We are here discussing The Innocence of Father Brown by G.K. Chesterton. Stories for this week. The Honor of Israel Gal, The Wrong Shape, The Sins of Prince Saradine, and The Hammer of God. And the other sins going on is that my sinuses make it sound like I am pinching my nose. Almost yeah, constantly. It's, it's great. I'm going to let you know, I think I've I've caught whatever it is that you've caught. Look, we're all sick today. That's just what we get for just spending our afternoons outside of the show, just making out. Just just having a great time. Just passion. Passionately smooching, mm-hmm. which is a great time, but also gets you very <laughs> sick. So today is Sickness of the Reader, <laughs> where we're the readers. <laughs> oh my goodness. You but know, hey, the show I, must go yep. on, Herds. It's true. And- I just wanted to say that I feel like this collection of stories so far is much more of a thesis statement on what makes Father Brown interesting. Okay, I'm interested to see what you mean by that. I have my own thoughts about this stretch, but tell me, please, what makes him interesting? I remember we were talking with Alex Pavese a little bit about Father Brown, and he was saying that it's sort of the weird metaphysical stuff that's going on, the strange descriptions of things being smote from above or impossible things happening that aren't like puzzle impossible, but are just kind of weird. And I think that the honor of Israel gal through the hammer of God just really captured that spirit in a way that the first few stories we covered last week on the show didn't as much. The entire setup with the honor of Israel gal, where all of the gold is missing from every item in the house, but all of the things the gold was holding are still there, is just so eerie in a way I've never felt something be eerie before. Well, crucially, what what makes that work there is that the fact that it's the gold that's missing is the detail that is that is itself missing, right? We're presented with all these different items that on their own seem to be very strange. But as soon as you realize, oh, all of these things would normally be paired with an item that is gold, like the candles are missing their candlesticks and the dust isn't in their like gold bowls and the the, the crosses, the crosses of the, of the holy Jesus that would be made of gold, they're missing, but, they, but it's not the fact that they're gold that is considered important at first. And so uh, Father Brown goes through this whole rigmarole of, of giving us like 10 different reasons why these items might be on their own in this mansion. But of course, it's that one particular detail that once, you know, what's missing, that last little detail is mentioned that you go, oh yeah, that all, like everything else makes sense if you apply this one simple trick. The thing I really like about this stretch of stories is that all of the little impossibilities still function within that school of thought where it's like, ah, they're impossible because this thing doesn't really make sense or this person couldn't have been here at that time. They show the kind of wonder and magic of the trick that makes that simplicity work. The guy just took all the gold is a very simple thing to say, but presenting it in this way where we are looking at the negative space in a physical, almost purely literary sense is 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 just <laughs> so inspiringly weird. I mean, that, that's a good way of describing, uh, I mean, a lot of these mysteries, honestly, but the, these first two in particular, the, the honor of Israel Gao and the wrong shape, 
rely on the on the absence of something, the absence of a specific detail, the wrong shape, which famously is spoiled in Van Dyne's The Beds of Murder Case, which we have covered on the show previously. That story lacks a murder, you know, in a strange way. Like the murder doesn't happen until after the detectives have discovered the body, which is a really fun trick. It's very simple in the way that it's executed here. All of the details that that story sets up about all the wrong shapes and the wrong people being in the house and that sort of thing, all the foreign oriental details as, as they're described, they all exist to kind of throw you off and make you feel like there's a big conspiracy here. There's some crime that's been carefully planned but really, it's just that one moment, you know, that moment didn't need to be a part of the house. You know, it's not like a, a part of the layout of the house is part of the crime, but that's how the story kind of, uh, it makes you expect that that's where the twist is going to be, I suppose. There definitely is a lens where you could look at a lot of what's going on in the wrong shape and say, oh, well, there's all of these old 1930s oriental stereotypes yeah. and it, it does kind of does kind of fit a little bit of the Noxian Chinaman thing. There are a few stories in this collection that are like, this is why we have the Chinaman rule, <laughs> because the character in the wrong shape, the man who's living with them, the Isane is living with them, is the Chinaman. Like, uh-huh. exists, uh, the police will go, ah, it's, it's that character, it's that suspicious person. And I mean, it's not them, to Chesterton's credit, of course. No, but it is very fun the way that it is using imagery to distract you from what is really a very simple puzzle which is just that the guy walked into the room ahead of them and stabbed them right then and there yeah he stabbed them while they were like reading the guy's will which mind you is pieced together from something a, a bit more tricky a bit trickier you might say but mm. the actual murder itself is very is very straightforward I think one of the weaker things about the wrong shape to me, but also maybe could be its greatest strength, is that in everything being the wrong shape in the story, the geography of the building really just feels both over and under described at the same time. Okay. It tries to give you a good scope of the layout of the building and spends enough words doing it that I feel like I was more confused than when we began. I mean, you say that, but the, the only detail that matters is that Flambeau, who continues to exist in these stories, he's great, he's my favourite part of these books, he has eyesight to where the, the victim is. The master of the house is in a, like a garden that's in the interior of the house, and that's where he likes to nap, and Flambeau can see directly into that garden. The other details of the geography of the house don't actually matter, the story does spend a lot of time talking about how strange everything is. Uh, it's mostly just to throw you off. And that's kind of what I mean, is that like it may be the story's secret greatest strength in that maybe the throwing off is kind of the point, but it did leave me sitting there looking over the description a few times going, what did I just, what? <laughs> how am I supposed to piece this together? Yeah. Well, it's like the knife, right? Like the knife is, is it bends in such a way that it would be impractical to cut with. It, it isn't really useful for stabbing or fighting. Like, why does this knife even exist? And the real reason why the knife is the shape that it is, is because only a surgeon would know how to strike with it so as to kill someone in one blow directly through the heart, which is ridiculous. I think that anybody could stab generally in that area and have pretty good odds. But also, look, I can't I love, see the knife. I love so. that Chesterton uses that particular device and just a few stories later in The Hammer of God, the Doctor's like, oh, yeah, no, all of those Doctor tropes in Murder Mystery are really Terrible. stupid. Yeah. 
Well, it's it's one of those things, and this this is kind of a pattern in these stories, is that uh, Chesterton tries to end his resolutions on a note of like, and then we resolve the paradox and that's the end of the story. But that, like in this story in particular, the wrong shit is a good example of it, like not entirely working, being like, yeah, only a surgeon could have made this masterful blow. But it's like, I mean, is that true? I don't, I don't know if that is true, but eh, it's, it's like everything else about the story is great, but that ending it feels like he's trying to tie everything up in a neat little bow but it doesn't yeah you like you can't through. really disagree with it because no. it's kind of the, the premise of the narrative no but it's also just such a weird assumption to stick out and say it feels like a bit of a stretch but it's still it's it's part and parcel of chesterton trying to wrap everything up and make it feel like you've learned something very specific you know in the resolution it, it definitely has the sort of energy where if Chesterton had chosen another solution, he could have explained that line in any way. It's like trying to pay off the clues, but in a way that the clues don't implicitly convey. It's 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 down to Chesterton's interpretation of his own clues. I mean, it's a similar vibe to when we when we read The Invisible Man. I mean, we didn't talk that much about the specific moment, but like the very ending of the story, The Invisible Man is just and then. Father Brown talked to the criminal and they shared many words and they were very important. And it's like, sure thing, if if you say so. So I'm sure that I'm sure that whatever they said was really was really cool and great. I mean, hey, listen, if if GK Chesterton doesn't think that he can do justice to how good that scene was in theory and just wants to like leave a tribute to it. You can do that. It doesn't mean This isn't the greatest scene in the world. It's not. It's not. It's not going to make it's just me a, just a tribute. The greatest story in the world. Uh Oh no. Um, (laughs) shall we discuss then this story about Prince Saradine and and his sins? Because this is such a bizarre story. I love the way it opens because it talks about, look, this story is like, it's a fairy tale. It's a fairy world where nothing is making sense and everything's magical and duels between knights happen and maids can be the mothers of those same nobles. Like, it's this whole thing. Before we get into all of that, they show up on a boat. They're traveling through these tiny canals in the middle of England. The Their ferry boat, boat seems to be a sailboat, but they're traveling inland. And they arrive at this place. And it's like you've just walked into out of a mystery novel and into a fantasy novel. Yeah, exactly. It is so strange. Yeah, there's all of that stuff that you're mentioning there, Herds, with like the knighthood and the chivalrous nonsense. Yeah, well, like there's this family drama with the maid having fathered a noble who has come to take his revenge. Like it's steeped, as you say, in this like medieval chivalry backstory. We don't go quite so far as to have literal magic. But we, we, you know, the whole setup of, of this story is that anything is possible. But of course, by the end of the story, find out that whatever is possible is something that Prince Saradine stole from Flambeau, which brings us crashing down to reality because the story sets up very early on that Flambeau has been asked to visit this prince because the prince is impressed with that one time that Flambeau managed to pit two of his detectives that were trying to catch him against each other. And the story that we read here is a mirror of that, where two people trying to catch the prince, he pits against each other. So in reality, this fairyland is a is a talentless hack <laughs> ripping off one of the greatest criminals of all time. 
which is a really fun juxtaposition within a controversy, let's say. I mean, it's also such a great way to tell a story about Flambeau now that we have removed him from the world of, like, crime. Uh, Removed is a strong word, but we've transposed him to the other side, right? Well, he is now a crime-committing amateur detective as opposed (laughs) to an amateur detective committing criminal. Uh, Committing, yep, you know what? That was perfect. I love that. (laughs) You're 100% correct, yes. He is now an amateur detective- who frequently works with Father Brown, but he is our Watson. He is our six foot tall, jacked, ripped, capable of anything Watson. Just ready to go. He's great. He's great. I look, I reckon more Watsons should just be ready to throw down at any second. That's what I want. The duel with these rapiers up on like a little hilltop surrounded by fog and everything is all dizzying and spinning. And there's all of this like blurred imagery before the real Prince Saradine steps out and is like, aha, I will now explain my crime to you. And it is your crime, Flumbo. I'm such a big fan. Yes, you're right. Well, yeah, (laughs) actually, you make a good point there that in the end, we don't just have the truth kind of revealed in the way that Father Brown would ask for a confession, but Prince Saradine says, ah, yes, Flambeau, but you see, you are the one who really did the crime. And so it becomes Flambeau's sin to bear, which is a really clever little narrative device. Yeah, there's this great line where he's like, I have nothing. You've cleaned me out and I will just live here quietly as your friend or, or, or your agent or anything. Whatever you want. Like, please love me, respect me. <laughs> also, I do love that this story ends with Flumbo just goes, do you think that was a dream? Like, did that did that all really just happen? <laughs> I suppose the last thing we should cover before we throw over the mystery section, Herds, is that you challenged me to solve the hammer of God. I did. I need you to tell me a man dies in a village and no one's around. And and who could have killed him with a big hammer or a yeah, small hammer? Yeah, could it have been the people that weren't there or the, the other people that weren't there or the other could people that the, weren't the, there? The, the, the blacksmith, he's like, bro, I was in the other part of the county. It's an impossible crime, impossible especially crime. impossible because women are such weaklings. It's true. Because a woman would use a small hammer. Yeah, and his head was crushed enormously. Enormously with a small hammer, which means that it couldn't have been a woman. Women are incapable of anything, says every character in this story for some reason. It's impossible. So I hope you're going to tell just... me how it was a woman who killed him, clearly. <laughs> Unfortunately, unfortunately, I cannot do that, Herds. I would love to. I would love to provide you that theory. Uh-huh. Maybe you can curate that for the, the second half of the show. Maybe I should. It's just, it was just, it was so weird and unnecessary. It's like there weren't, <laughs> there wasn't even any need for them to debunk that it could have been a woman. Isn't it Father Brown who like, he like grabs a woman's arms. He's like, look at this. Yeah, I know. This couldn't <laughs> chuck a hammer. This couldn't happen. It's not a real thing. Women can't use weapons. Come on. What do you think this is? Colonel Bohan, (laughs) Norman Bohan, has his head jolly old smashed in so heavily that there are bits and pieces of his skull inside his flesh, which seems like a bit of a tautology, but I assure you that it is a relevant part of the description. Mm. Anyway, uh, Herds, I have have a unique way to solve this one. What's the unique way? Well, the title is called uh, Hammers from God. Yes, so God did it. I wanted to introduce you to a hypothetical space weapon called Uh the Rods from God. Please tell me about the space weapon. Gravity does some beefy stuff. I do like gravity. What if we put just a big metal rod in space and we just dropped it? And if you let it fall from high enough, it would have enough kinetic energy to be equivalent to an intercontinental ballistic missile. That seemed pretty good. I don't know how you'd aim that, though, with what with the Earth spinning around. Well, you all. see, that's the thing. 
<laughs> there was a YouTube video. Today is just a YouTube episode, I suppose. It's becoming very convenient, but yes, please tell me about YouTube. Derek Muller, former professor of the University of Sydney here in, in, oh my in, goodness. in, in, in New South Wales. I've been there. Tried to replicate a scale model of this weapon and asked some academics to help him figure out how he'd aim the thing. And they were like, well, we can't because everyone who knows has been told quite viciously by the United States military to not tell anyone ever. I have to ask, is this real? I can't. This is real. All of these facts. All of these facts are real. I thought we were doing a bit. I just said, how would you aim it out of pure curiosity? And now here I am getting a history lesson. Please continue. (laughs) A very recent history lesson. Apparently. So anyway, safe to say it is impossible. Wilfred went up to the top of the chapel and threw the hammer off because there's no way that he could aim such a weapon. That would be impossible. I mean, look, if you had to pick a method of of direction as to how one Reverend Wilson might have directed some kind of orbital weapon, yes. what, what would you choose? Do you think that you could pick out a way that they might define their target? Okay, so herds, if you if you were to put a light Japanese or Chinese helmet torn down from a trophy that hung in the old family hall on top of any city in the world, and then yes. the U.S. military was to disapparate me, uh-huh. that might explain things. But the U.S. military has not disapparated me, so it cannot be that Wilfred threw it at this bright green helmet. <laughs> uh, bright green helmet that may or may not make you look like a beetle from above. That would be... Ridiculous. Yeah, that'd be that'd be far fetched. But I would want to crush such a beetle with my hammer. <laughs> Perhaps a shoe. Depending on how heavy the shoe was. Anyway, Herds, I feel like you have the information that you need from me. Oh, yeah, I'm happy. I'm pretty happy with that. That's a pretty good uh, solution yeah, based I don't, on. I don't have any solution. US, yeah. I don't have any solution for this one because it would be impossible. It would be impossible. And if I I'm could hearing. pose a solution, the U.S. government wouldn't let me be on air. Look, the U.S. government wouldn't be able to solve this one. It's so. true. It's true, the U.S. government could not solve (laughs) the Hammer of God by G.K. Chesterton. They could not solve. (laughs) I think any of G.K. Chesterton's brilliant murder mysteries. I don't think it's possible, so I think you're safe. I think I am, too. Secret is safe with me. Anyhow. Yeah, you're listening to Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. If we don't come back after the break, you know what happened to us. Stick around. More to come on your murder mystery world tour. Shout out to scientists. Hi, this is Andrew from Final Draft. 2SER is a registered non-profit charity organisation. If you're looking to make a tax-deductible donation before June 30, head to 2SER.com. Thanks. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing The Innocence of Father Brown by G.K. Chesterton, up to and including The Hammer of God, which I have just had the fortune to solve i didn't really didn't really think of that adjective before i used mm-hmm. it but hey for using the force known as gravity in a murder mystery via oral bombardment yes as if it was willed by the very gods themselves it's safe to say herds that uh gk chesterton was probably taken away by the u.s government my goodness because uh, he seems to have found a way to solve the orbital weapons problem yeah through uh beetle targeting systems yeah if you just put a green helmet just on the ground (laughs) just in any location it's true that's how hammers work if you throw a hammer up in the air it is instantly drawn to the nearest green helmet it's like lightning to tall things well unless unless it was swung by a woman in which case she couldn't (laughs) do it it's true i look 
I think my favorite part of this story, by the way, you're getting your point. You did very well. Congratulations. You figured out that the force of gravity is also the force of God. God can work through physical laws. It's a very, it's very clever. Thank you, Chesterton. I like that in explaining the crime to the criminal, Brown, Father Brown doesn't do it directly in this story. He says, you know, perhaps there was a man standing in a high place somewhere, something much like this church that we're standing on now. And he explains the crime to Reverend Wilfred in the manner in which the witnesses had been talking earlier. So the woman talks about how she couldn't crush a beetle. And so he describes the green hat of the deceased like a beetle that you could just reach out and crush. And also the blacksmith talks about how he couldn't just chuck a hammer, you know, clean across the country. And then again, Father Brown uses that as one of the two hints that he gives in trying to solve the mystery. He gives that to the doctor. The way that Chesterton shows not only his own grasp of like the structure of his novel and like the wordplay that he's using, but also shows Father Brown's wit in being able to kind of take the clues and reassemble them in a way to explain the crime to other people, I think is really unique because it, it does have a certain level of like taunt to it, especially in this story. He feels very powerful, which is why I love the moment where this all kind of comes to a peak is when the Reverend tries to throw himself from the balcony that he previously threw his hammer from or dropped his hammer from whatever. And Father Brown grabs him by the collar and says, not by that door. That door leads to hell. He has quite a few badass lines in this story. And that's like, it's great. Yeah, there's, there's some great stuff here. I also like the way that Brown says he actually figured it out is not necessarily putting the like literary clues together because, you know, he wouldn't have been presented them directly. It's that he was like looking at the guilt of Wilfred as he's trying to avoid putting anyone in the line of fire for his crime. Yes. He blames it on the madman. He's like, you'd fix the crime on the Smith, even though that was easy or his wife, even though that was easy. You tried to fix it on the guy who couldn't suffer. Well, it's not just that he couldn't suffer. It's, it's that he, when he's trying to pin it on the, the madman who comes to the church every now and then he says like, Oh, it's a shame that the crime can only be reason to be on the head of this person who can't be blamed. Like he goes to bat for the proposed criminal. He tries to paint the situation. This is the, the criminal, the Reverend tries to paint the crime as a tragedy rather than as something that was intended, which to some degree is, is true. Like this murder was committed by him at an opportunistic time rather than it being something that's, that's been planned out. I think that's something that kind of threads through the, the criminals that are not flambeau. There are a few of them that are opportunistic or commit crimes on a whim, which allows Father Brown to be like, maybe there is some redemption here, or maybe we can kind of take this in a more tactful way. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of what happens in this story. The criminal gives himself up at the end. He's like, eh. well, yeah, I mean, there's there's little subtle bits of language in that, too, where Brown says, like, ah, even though the, the, the hypothetical criminal here was a good man, he committed a great crime and like using those comparatives to sort of weigh up where Brown's head is on the like valuation of what is going on here. Yeah, he's always thinking. And I think just on a like personal level, it's the reason why like I enjoy Father Brown so much is because he is always thinking like he's yes. he's never quite sure of his like 
I mean, he is sure of his judgment in certain certain circumstances, but as he's putting the crime together, he's like thinking and rambling. And there's there's one bit of characterization later on where he like picks at his fingers or something. Like yes. there's lots of little bits of physical and and verbal characterization that paint him as someone who is flawed and who is still trying to work things out the same as the rest of us, I guess. The, the other thing is, is that he's, he's not thinking on clues. He's thinking on judgment, right? Yes. yes. He, he is not worried so much with the physical clues so much as he is worried with the ways that criminals give themselves up through the like weight of what they have For done. Sure. Yeah. Whether that be like Israel gal only taking exactly what was promised to him or Wilfred in this situation trying to not have anyone actually be handed responsibility for the crime. He's not sitting there going like, ah, oh, well, here is this helmet, which would have provided a great opportunity to see. He's figured out, oh, it's Wilfred. Then how did Wilfred do it? Yeah. I mean, not, not to talk too much about mysteries for next week, but there's one in particular where he figures out almost immediately you know, who the criminal is just based on their body language. And then from that point, he still looks very like nervous. He's very concerned as the case goes on, but it's not because he's thinking, man, I just can't quite crack this case. I can't quite figure out who the villain is or how they did it. No, he sees that all very plainly, but a lot of his questioning is a sort of similar thing to Miss Marple, actually, when he, he turns to someone and he says, isn't it curious that, you know, this person has this opinion or that these shoes are in the wrong room or something? He's not asking it because he's like, hey, can you confirm for me wh where you were when the shoes were moved? He's asking it because he wants to see whether the, the person he's asking shows any remorse for having moved the shoes because he knows that they did that, you know? The other comparison I was going to make here is to SS Van Dyne's Philo Vance. And it's Philo Vance who brings up the wrong shape in the Benson murder case. And the whole way through the Benson murder case, the vibe is, is that he figured it out immediately and he's just kind of taunting you and everyone else in the cast as he goes about showing off. And I can really kind of see how Philo Vance was in that way inspired by Father Brown but SS Van Dyne clearly missed what made that application compelling in Father Brown, which is that he is aware of all the clues and is very quick on the draw in the same sort of sense, but it's much more about the experience of getting there rather than it is the all-encompassing power of Father Brown. Yes, yes. Well, Father Vance is, uh, is a robot, not a detective, or not a human, I should say. Father Vance is existing to solve everything and then taunt everybody. He's just the perfect man. He doesn't judge anyone, <laughs> be them black, Asian, <laughs> Caucasian, or what? Oh, goodness. I mean, listen, that was supposedly the redeeming feature of the Kettle Murder case, and I did quite enjoy that film, but... <laughs> yeah, I... Look, maybe we watched, maybe we watched a, a, a different film. <laughs> yeah, like, Father Vance was very competent at his job, and he deserves all of all of the medals, but Father Brown knows when not to expose a crime and when to let things be. And that judgment is much more interesting, as always, than actually solving the puzzle. Because at the end of the day, a good murder mystery is solvable by anyone who picks up the book. So by definition, having the detective solve the murder is the least impressive thing that they can do. 
though it is ex- expected, obviously. I, I suppose the, the other thing that I did want to touch on uh, before we wrap up this week is that this week did have me thinking a lot about like how Chesterton uses light. Uh, sure. Like the way that Wilfred kind of walks out into the sun at the end of the story and the way that the kind of shading and ominous lighting through the Prince of Saradine is used. So maybe I'll have to uh, keep an eye on if I can get ahead of anything in next week's stories as I'm trying to solve them. Pun intended. Yes, well. Because Herds, what are we covering next week? So we're going to be doing something fun. We're going to be covering all of the remaining stories. Um, those being the Eye of Apollo, which is about a sun cult, which is, mwah, it's beautiful. The blinding sun, it's going to be great fun. Uh-huh. The Sign of the Broken Sword, and then the Three Tools of Death. But I'm going to have you solve the Eye of Apollo. Oh, the first one. I think that it is the truest murder mystery in the sense that it will be interesting for you to solve. Mostly because, honestly, the Three Tools of Death, I, th- I think that you can already guess the twist simply by me telling you the title of the story. I know I did. Well. So let's not let's not bother with that one. Let's just read that one and have a chat about how silly it is to to go back to in the modern age. So yeah, I'm going to have you solve the Eye of Apollo, and I'm going to have to, you go up to the lion where Flambeau cries, Pauline was alone when she fell, and it was suicide. Oh no! Which means that it couldn't possibly be murder. It's impossible. It couldn't have happened. And I'm going to have you solve that one. It's going to be great. Alrighty. Well, Herds, thank you so much for joining us here as we cover Innocence of Father Brown, and thank you for tuning in. Yep, great to be here, unlike usual. (laughs) (laughs) This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. Flex and Herds here guiding you through the Innocence of Father Brown. We'll be back with more next week on the show. You're listening to 2SER 107.3.